Well, if you've been hankering for some raging on the left, you're going to get it tonight. You're going to get that red meat you've been craving that I've been denying you the past couple of days as we've been reflecting upon deeper philosophical issues. I mean, you know, there's going to be some philosophy. Don't you worry. But uh, my sights are metaphorically, because you have to you have to qualify it nowadays, metaphorically trained on the left, on the Democrats this evening. Closing argument. My name's Walter Atson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Catch us streaming at TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and your iHeartRadio app. Two ways to stream us. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. Appreciate you joining us. You can catch up on past shows by doing a search for Closing Argument in your iHeartRadio app, and our channel will pop right up for you. You can contribute at 651-989-5855. Brad Omlin takes those calls and produces the show. Later this hour, we are going to be joined by a prisoner. And that's, I'm not joking. That's not a a, a metaphor that we're literally going to get a phone call from a guy who's in prison to get his insider perspective on criminal justice. And uh, I... I'm it, this is going to be like opening a mystery box because I have no idea where this conversation is going to go, but it's certainly going to be different than anything we've done in the past. I like being experimental once in a while, and Brad has been good enough to facilitate that for us. He doesn't sound like a crazy person. He at least sounds like he can have a civil conversation, and I am at least interested in seeing what he has to say. It. I mean, the promo could have gone either like you could have thought it was either going to be Jerry, like Jerry Springer style. Like, this guy's in prison. He says he's being mistreated. Find out tonight. Or just, hey, uh, find out from someone who's actually inside the system what he thinks it's actually like. Well, I'm much more interested in the latter. Like, I'm 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 not particularly interested in just listening to the random ravings of somebody who happens to be in prison. But uh, the, the notion of getting a thoughtful perspective from somebody who's made some errors in judgment uh, in terms of how the system uh, is set up will be interesting. It'll yes, certainly be valuable. I think that is the appropriate way to frame it. Before we get to that, though, I want to start off tonight with this situation. You, know, you guys are probably aware of it now. Last night, you might not even have been tracking. Like, we weren't paying any attention to the primaries that were going on around the country last night because there was nothing that at least struck me as particularly interesting going on. I did see this report out of Politico regarding the Florida governor's race. Democrat Andrew Gillum shocked Florida's political class Tuesday night and became the first black nominee for governor in the largest swing state in the nation, setting up a November showdown against Representative Ron DeSantis, who won the GOP primary with the enthusiastic backing of President Donald Trump. Gillum's 33 to 31 percent victory over former Representative Gwen Graham, fueled by grassroots energy and big donor dollars, presents Florida voters with the starkest of choices in style and substance come November 6th. Gillum is a Bernie Sanders-endorsed Medicare-for-all candidate. We're going to get into talking about this new brand of, quote, democratic socialism, unquote, that has infiltrated the Democratic Party and basically taken it over and, uh, in this case, has decided primary victories. DeSantis is a Trump ally who voted several times to abolish Obamacare. Gillum is a dynamic speaker who wows liberal crowds with his deep voice. The Harvard-educated DeSantis has a more bookish delivery and a higher pitch. Gillum was inspired by former President Barack Obama's dreams of my father, 
DeSantis wrote his own book as a refutation of Obama's and called it Dreams of Our Founding Fathers. So a stark contrast is the point that they're getting after here in Politico last night in the wake of the primary uh, victories of these two gentlemen who are squaring off to be Florida's next chief executive. And then today, both of these names, Gillum and DeSantis, skyrocketed in national prominence due to controversy. Controversy! Now, this is... I'm sure many of you already know, you know, we're going to give you the details here what the story is, but I'm sure some of you have been tracking it on social media and you're well aware of what we're about to get into. I, you know, I hate to to make a proclamation along the lines of this is the stupidest story I've read in the past week or the past month or maybe this year, but this this is definitely a contender for dumb stories. And more than dumb, it's more than dumb. It's It's insidiously vile what is going on here. From NBC News, Andrew Gillum, the black Democratic nominee for governor in Florida, said Wednesday that it was clear his GOP rival is going to join Donald Trump in the swamp after Ron DeSantis said in a television interview that the state should not, quote, monkey this up, unquote, by electing Gillum. We're going to leave them there. And we continue to press toward a higher mark, Gillum said Wednesday on MSNBC's Meet the Press Daily. Gillum was responding to a comment DeSantis made in an interview Wednesday morning on Fox News when speaking about his newly minted general election rival, a progressive who won his party's nomination in an upset on Tuesday night. This was the quote. This is the quote that has DeSantis in trouble and that has been the cause of controversy. Sean Hannity just had a segment on it before we came on the air tonight. And this is this has been captivating the nation. This is the comment that DeSantis said. You know, he, Gillum, is an articulate spokesman for those far left views, and he's a charismatic candidate. The last thing we need to do is to monkey this up by trying to embrace a socialist agenda with huge tax increases and bankrupting the state. That is not going to work. That's not going to be good for Florida. Now, in case you're not following, because up to this point, like if I don't if I don't go any further to explain to you what the controversy is, you might be scratching your head wondering, when am I going to hear the controversial part? Like, where's the controversy in this? Gillum said later that his opponent, who was met with fierce backlash for his remarks, was trying to divide voters in the state. We're better than this in Florida. I believe the congressman can be better than this. I regret that his mentor in politics is Donald Trump, but I do believe that the voters of the state of Florida are going to reject the politics of division. Chuck Todd, the host of Meet the Press Daily, said DeSantis was invited to appear on the program after making the comment, but declined. Gillum, who is endorsed by Senator uh, Bernie Sanders of Vermont and George Soros, is vying to become the state's first black governor. DeSantis was endorsed by President Donald Trump. They've gotten like six, seven paragraphs into this, and they haven't even told you what the controversy is. You know what the controversy is? They're characterizing monkey this up, the phrase monkey this up, as a racial epithet directed at Gillum, who is black. In other words, because the word monkey was used in a sentence, it automatically makes the comment racial. Not just racial, but racist. 
It was intended as a racist attack upon Gillum. That's the way it's being per- not just portrayed, but taken as gospel, taken as granted. There is no other possible interpretation of these comments. It was prima facie racism. And oh my God, I can't believe DeSantis is even on the ballot. And Florida voters need to go out there and reject racism. That's the way this has been portrayed in the media all day long. Now, this is the stupidest, most disingenuous, completely vile and immoral political attack I've seen in some time. And and this is in the era of Donald Trump that I'm saying this. So this is saying something. I have a huge pet peeve with people who pretend not to understand something. And literally everyone, I said this on social media today, and I stand by it. Literally everyone on the planet knows this was not a racist comment. There isn't a single human being anywhere who has the slimmest doubt of what DeSantis actually meant. There isn't a single human being anywhere who doesn't understand what the phrase monkey this up or monkeying around means in a social context, in a context of conversation. It never has in any context ever been a racial comment or a reference to race of any kind. This is a completely manufactured controversy due to willful misunderstanding, willful ignorance of the metaphor, which is pretty vile when the purpose of doing so is to, tr- is to try to concoct an intent that is not there, specifically an intent that's racist in nature. It's, there are, you know, there are certain things that if you're going to accuse somebody of being, you better be right. If you're going to accuse somebody of being a child molester, you better have some evidence. If you're going to accuse somebody of being a murderer, you better have something to back it up. If you're going to accuse somebody of being a racist, your case better be ironclad. Because that's one of the most vile things that you can be in our society, is a racist. Particularly the way the, the connotation is in the culture. And so to just throw around these accusations uh, and to try to conjure intent from something that clearly was not expressed is pretty ridiculous. You know, Matt Walsh in in his podcast sometime back it, re- addressing a completely different scenario talked about communication, talked about what communication is and I liked the way he broke it down. He said that communication has real really three parts to it. The first is what did the person actually say? The second is what did they mean by what they said? And the third is, what did the recipient of the message hear? And successful communication takes place when all three of these aspects align. When the person says what they mean, and the person hears it as it was intended. The problem is, and you know, there's all sorts of completely legitimate ways in which miscommunication can occur. You know, somebody can, can try poorly articulate what they actually mean which leads to it being misunderstood. You know, people, there can be a cultural context or some sort of language barrier that contributes to misunderstandings between, in this process, between what somebody means, what they actually say, and how it's received. And legitimate misunderstandings are totally benign, totally innocent, and not something that we ought to criticize or punish people for. But intentional misunderstanding, like when you know what somebody said, and you know what they meant, and you purposely mischaracterize it, which is the only conclusion I can come to looking at what DeSantis actually said. This Again, this is a quote. 
The last thing we need to do is monkey this up by trying to embrace a socialist agenda with huge taxes and bankrupting the state. What part of that is racial? Obviously, none of it. Obviously, none of it. Race was not mentioned. Race was not the object. The phrase monkey this up or monkeying around has no historical racial context whatsoever. So rationally, there is no path from which you hear that statement and come to the conclusion that it was racial in nature. You have to make a creative leap to come to the conclusion that this was a racist comment. And that's what the left has done today. And not just the left in, 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 in terms of uh, Gillum and the Democratic Party, but the media, the mainstream media, in giving legitimacy to this idea that DeSantis has something to apologize for because he said something that was misconstrued that obviously wasn't meant in the way that the Democrats are misconstruing. Let's go to Anthony in Minneapolis. Welcome to the program. Hey, Walter. Uh, I just want to call you know, I, I want to talk about the the concept of the primate reference um, not being relevant in the sense that, you know, that you're jumping to conclusions. And I think that's entirely false, because if you look at history, the Democratic Party over 100 years, you look at all their old Democratic Party um, advertisements, stuff like that, they constantly reference the African-American community to primates. Right, but it was a direct they, reference. It was a direct reference, and it was it was an obviously intended reference. This was not. Yep. No, no, I, and I agree with you on a hundred percent on that. But I think what's ironic about the whole situation is they're crying wolf about a situation that they created. If you look at history, they're the ones that made that reference, that pushed that, you know, what I mean that narrative. Um, to African Americans being relevant to uh, primates. The, the, here, here's 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 where I go with the point you're making. I appreciate you making, it, Anthony. We, we're up against a break, but what Anthony is speaking to is the fact that this is projection. This is projection. This is the, because the left, and we can we can get into and have gotten into why their worldview is this way. But for the left. They see race everywhere. They see the world through the prism of identity politics and racial dynamics and oppressor and oppressed. And so they are looking for these types of characterizations in order to both both in terms of being oversensitive to it because they've wrapped up their sense of significance in something as petty as racial identity. In other words, they're racists. And also because it has a political utility. And so. When they hear the word monkey spoken in a sentence where somebody who's black is running for office and they immediately draw the conclusion that it has to be, it absolutely positively must be a reference to the person's race. There's no other possible explanation, and that's what we're going to run with. It's absurd, it's vile, it's immoral, and it ought to be condemned by the media, not reported as though it's a legitimate argument. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name's Walter Outson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, com. certain words in our culture that get used way too often and as a result they lose their potency they don't carry the weight that they properly ought to they don't command the attention 
that they properly ought to as a result of their overuse. You know, racism comes to mind. We just got done talking about the, this stupid fake controversy regarding the governor's race in Florida. Racism might be the the word that is most abused in this fashion, where it's it's tossed about so liberally that it loses all of its potency. It has no effect. It's like crying wolf when racism actually rears its head. Nobody really bothers to respond to it in the way they properly ought to because they've been so worn down and desensitized to cries of racism. Another word that's competing in this race for most overused and therefore desensitized word is socialism. Socialism. And, you know, I, I contribute to this. We all do. We use socialism as a kind of catch all to just encompass the left and the ideas of the left. Anybody who's, who's left of center. You know, when we, when we think of, when we talk about social security, we describe it as socialist. We talk about the, the Obamacare, we describe it as socialist. And there's a, there's an extent, there's a sense in which it is, and it, it properly can be categorized as such. But it's important for us to understand that when actual died in the wool, card-carrying democratic socialists, such as Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, when they, or Bernie Sanders, and the like, and this guy Gillum down in Florida, when they use the term socialism, they mean something specific that goes above and beyond what is currently being discussed in the political discourse, and they're not even shy about telling you what their goal is. To preface this, we turn to an op-ed from a Democratic activist who's sounding the alarm about socialism, democratic socialism, quote-unquote, infiltrating the Democratic Party. He writes, you know, he gives a little background on where he he came from Cuba. He grew up in Miami, and so he had a family that escaped socialist Cuba. And he writes, despite my working-class immigrant roots, this is in the USA Today, I am concerned by the popularity of socialism within my party. On the night of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's victory in New York, I thought her her use of the name was a misnomer. Then I began studying the views of the Democratic Socialists of America, the rapidly growing national organization she belongs to, and I was disturbed by what I learned. Like those of yesteryear, today's socialists believe the government should nationalize major industries, propose eliminating private ownership of companies. We just talked about a story earlier this week wherein Elizabeth Warren is proposing, in reality today, she's proposing to take away ownership of companies from stockholders and give it to other what she would call stakeholders. So like the people who live in the city where the company is based are going to be able to get to determine how it's run because they live next to it. So this is already happening. He goes on to write, uh, they socialists, these democratic socialists who are in the democratic party now reject profits. In other words, democratic socialism is a lot like the system my family fled in Cuba, except its proponents promised to be nicer when seizing your business. When I confronted some progressive friends about this, they initially dismissed my concerns. After sharing some articles with them, the conversation shifted to, they just want us to be more like the Nordic countries and they're not like real socialists. Both are reductionist self-delusions to avoid confronting difficult truths. And uh, we'll, we'll get into this more after we get on the other side of our interview with Bryce from Lionel Lakes, who is going to be calling us very shortly from prison to tell us all about 
his thoughts on the criminal justice system. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name is Walter Atson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, So I guess Jamar called over the break, and he wants to take me on over this uh, Gillum versus DeSantis controversy that has emerged. So he'll be calling us later in the program to, to go after that. I cannot wait to hear his rationale for how the, the, the comment by DeSantis is obviously racist. Only possible interpretation. Clearly, he's just a giant bigot, and that's the only, that's the only possible way you could interpret the comments that he had. We'll get into that later in the program. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Streaming at com and your iHeartRadio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. Brad Omlin takes your calls and produces the show. On the line, we have joining us Bryce, who is currently residing as an inmate in the Minnesota Correctional Facility in Lino Lakes. Welcome to the program, Bryce. Hey, Walter. It's a pleasure to be here tonight. So what brought this on? Yeah, so, you know, I spend uh, just about every weeknight listening to your show, and uh, I hear all the fabulous ideas you have for prison reform, but rather a cultural change. Mm-hmm. And uh, I hear a lot of that, and I, I follow it all, and a lot of us doing here. You know, it's the exciting thing for us to possibly hear about some legislation to change, or who knows, you know, a little, maybe they'll give us six months back. but. Um, one thing I don't hear a lot of is, is anybody talking to us in here, you know, and I yeah. think we've got a perspective that um, they could gain a lot of insight from. Yeah, I think that that is, you know, when we had Mark Hazy, who's running for Hennepin County Attorney, on to talk about his, his bid for that office, that's one of the things that he talked about was the the fact that policy is very often made without considering the the human beings who it affects and i think in in uh, cases such as yours you know when people are are kind of get that what i've described as the scarlet c sewed into their outer garment that you know labels them as a criminal it's very easy to just dehumanize people from that point forward and not think of them as human beings who are going to potentially at some point rejoin society and and have uh, a uh, a responsibility and a value that we need to acknowledge. So, you know, in in light of that, let's let you have this time. Um, what is it that you wanted to share with the listeners tonight? Yeah, I think you know, I'll, I'll just share this perspective with you. What it's like daily to be in here, uh, and I'll and I'll tell you a little bit about myself. So, I'm a drug addict, and I'm serving 150 months for the possession of methamphetamines, and of that, I'm going to do 100 months, and. Um, most likely I'm going to spend most of that time here at Lionel Lakes. Um, but as a daily activity, you know, I, I do nothing to pay restitution to society for my crimes, which I would love to do uh, mm-hmm. willingly, um, you know, right myself with society if society would come up with some terms. But as of now, the terms are, hey, here's 150 months, go do 100 of it in the Department of Corrections. Mm-hmm. So most of my days are spent waking up, eating breakfast, doing whatever the heck I want. I can get a job or I can do whatever the heck I want all day long. Um, but for me, those days are filled with, you know, phone calls to my home, uh, talking to my wife, my children, you know, uh, which is just a huge burden daily. The cost to do that is uh, it's astronomical in here. I mean, we've spent over $1,000 just on telephone calls mm-hmm. at three a day. So that burden is just is insane, you know. And to wake up every day and just be willing and able to want to support my family and help them, and I can't. I can't do a thing. It's like it's almost like dying with your eyes open. You know, it's uh, 
it's torture, really. Um, yeah, to want to do more and just not be able to is the most frustrating thing in the world. So when you talk about doing more, it sounds like you're referencing, you know, engaging in some sort of productive activity, employment, a job where you could earn something and, and send some money back home. Is that the general idea that you're conjuring? Oh, my God, that would be amazing. Yeah, that would be the basis for it. I mean, they could force us to work to support our families. I would think that the majority of the guys in here, our children are on some type of assistance, you know, with the county, uh, whether it be Medicare or food stamps or whatever mm-hmm. it might be. Yeah, it's it's an interesting idea from the perspective of, you know, if if the objective of rehabilitation or if the objective of the, the correction system includes rehabilitation, if it includes a vision for getting people back into productive society, you would think that you would want to have some sort of, of ratcheting up towards that responsibility or incentivization or incentivizing of, okay, let's, let's get you guys doing something whereby you can get used to this idea of work reward, work reward, and, and actually being able to, to take pride in having provided something to the people you care about. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for myself also, you know, coming in as a drug addict, the, the first thing that I get is a mandate for treatment. Mm-hmm. But that treatment mandate won't be met until my last 24 months. So if you do the math, I'm going to do 76 months until I see any type of therapy for the reason that I'm here in prison. That's interesting. Yeah, I thought so. That's kind of backwards, I would think. Yeah, absolutely. You'd think they'd want to get you working in the right direction so you could live a healthy, meaningful life, whatever it might be in here um, from the start, yeah. So when you, you know, you say you listen to this show, which we appreciate, and you listen to a lot of the other commentary that's going on, particularly when the topic of criminal justice reform is raised, what ideas that are being bantied about um, in from various directions on criminal justice uh, do you find appealing and why? Uh, well, so I think it's just kind of some of the libertarian views that you have uh, just about the freedom to do what it is that you want to do as long as it's morally sound. You know, when it comes to drugs, I think um, I don't I don't see some broad stroke of legalization for drugs, but I think uh, you know, just the way that society is viewing it now, you know, you have all these drug task force that are uh, just mounted to go, you know, find drug addicts and drug dealers. And, right. You know, they're not really hunting down the rest of these crimes. You know, you had that uh, expose in the in the Star Tribune about the rape. Um, right. Cases Correct. That were just fumbled. And you, you made a comment that, uh, you know, it's kind of a demotion to have those jobs. You know, that makes sense. Right. You've dealt with these task force. They've got all the latest, greatest technology. Mm-hmm. They're out there having a blast, you know? Right. Yeah, I mean, it's it it does seem to, to, to me and to folks who think along those lines when it comes to the war on drugs to be a massive misallocation of resources, to be going after people who... And I, I, I am not familiar with the details of your case. What I... What I do know is, based upon the the few details I've seen, is that you were arrested for possession of methamphetamine and possession of uh, unlawful possession of a weapon. Is that correct? Yeah, firearm. So how did you? How was the possession of the weapon unlawful? Was it due to a prior arrest? Conviction. Correct. Okay. Okay, I got you. So in terms of you know that that side of it makes sense. The yes. the possession of methamphetamine, you know, that's something that you have to point to me to who the victim is. You have to point the victim of that to me is the fact that you had it. 
I mean, you know, obviously you're victimizing yourself by subjecting yourself to something that you absolutely positively should not do. Uh, but I, I don't know how that develops a debt to society engaging in in a, a harmful use of a substance to yourself. Yeah, it's tough to rationalize how that equates to 150 months for me on a daily basis. So I agree with you on the felon in possession. I can see uh, the logic behind, you know, uh, me having a history that seems dangerous to society where I shouldn't possess a firearm. I, I can I can align with that, and I can more willingly do my time for that and not have such a struggle with it as it relates to the way society might see it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, listen, I appreciate you calling in tonight. I appreciate you sharing your story and your perspective, and uh, we wish you the best in, in terms of, you know, you, you appear to be uh, searching for value and significance and, and meaning, and those are worthwhile pursuits. And if, if uh, spending a, a stint in line of legs is what it took to get you there, then uh, uh, it looks like some good might have come out of it. Yeah, I might have been there before and just kind of uh, made some bad decisions. Sure. Appreciate the call. Enjoy the rest of your evening. Thanks, Walter. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson. When we get back, we'll see if Jamar calls back here. If you're listening, now's the time, man. I want to give you as much time as possible for us to get into it here about the DeSantis-Gillum thing. Because, boy, I can't imagine what your argument is going to be. That'll be fun. If he doesn't call, then we'll get back into talking about the state of, quote, democratic socialism, unquote, within the Democratic Party. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. Start up the program tonight talking about what I regard to be a completely fake, disingenuous controversy, fake outrage regarding the gubernatorial race down in Florida between a gentleman by the name of DeSantis who just won the primary for the GOP and he's going up against a guy by the name of Gillum who won the primary for the Democrats. Gillum happens to be black, and DeSantis happens to be white. And DeSantis, in a television interview, said the following about his opponent. You know, he is an articulate spokesman for those far-left views, and he's a charismatic candidate. The last thing we need to do is to monkey this up by trying to embrace a socialist agenda with huge tax increases and bankrupting the state. That is not going to work. That's not going to be good for Florida. For this, DeSantis has been accused of racism, of dog-whistling to the alt-right, because obviously any time the word monkey is used in a context where a black person is anywhere even remotely in consideration, it's obviously racial. It's the only possible conclusion you can come to. Or so says, presumably... Jamar, who's on the line with us and is going to talk with us shortly. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. 651-989-5855 is the number to join us. You'll probably have to wait until after the break in order to get on, because I imagine me and Jamar are going to take it all the way to the end of the hour. Appreciate you coming on. Black Republican, Black Democrat can be heard Saturdays at 6 p.m. with Jamar. Thanks for joining the program tonight. No, thanks for having me, bro. Uh, Listen, Walter, uh, as much as I love you, bro, you gotta calm down, bro. It kills me how you don't, how you don't think, or you find it offensive that someone like myself or somebody or other black folks find it offensive that these people are blowing the bullhorn. They're not only blowing dog whistles, these are bullhorns. How you don't, first of all, monkey it up is not even a damn real phrase. I've never heard that phrase in my friggin' life. 
You've never, you've never hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. You've never heard the term. You just cited a couple. You've never I, heard. The, I, I you've bet, never heard the word no. monkey. You've never heard I the word monkey again. used as a verb in I order bet. to imply screwing around or messing up. As a black man, why does this offend you that white folks always wanted that he decided to use this term with this black man when we know that those racial connotations are always used when it comes to black people, calling them monkeys or gorillas or something? First of all, we first of all we know we don't know that because that's not how this phrase is used. When you're describing a black man, do you have to describe us as being articulate? So okay, no, no, hold on, hold on. Let's focus on that for a minute because that's another aspect of this that I've heard people complain about that DeSantis paid him a frick compliment and said he was oh, articulate yeah, that's, that's somehow so no 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 no. hold on so what was he supposed to say about him is there literally anything that DeSantis can say about Gillum that isn't racist I mean if what if he false outrage I'll tell you what he should have said how about congratulating the man that was spent three to one three to one in a primary made spent so, three to one how about saying look so DeSantis a, a competitive great campaign I look forward to debating issues with you coming up but because guess what there's a stark contrast differences between himself and Gillum. So what he should have done is went ahead and talked about the the messaging and the differences between he the two. He did. Again, that's the whole point, like Jamar. Speak, that's the whole point. Is that that's See, what you, he was talking you about? You tend to think about. You tend to think through party lines. It kills me how this is not party line, like Jamar. This is not party line. This is basic English. This is the meaning of words. Say about black folks, bro. This is America, and this is Trump's party. They're full of bigots and racists. And the, the the moment that you the moment that you agree with that, it'll help. It'll help further things, bro. The fact that you never get offended when something is said offensively towards black folks is amazing. You are, you are first of all, Jamar. Black folks shouldn't be offended that they, that these people are blowing dogs. You're you're doing the exact same thing to me right now. You're doing the exact same thing to me right now that people are doing to DeSantis. Getting the pissed off when black folks hear things, when we hear these dog whistles, how you think that it's ignorant of us to hear these dog whistles and not say something about it. Bruh, this I was, is I was not a dog whistle. When I, I was, this I is not a dog whistle. The there is Walker. nothing. Listen, I'm a Jamar. Old man. I can be described differently. Jamar. This is not a dog whistle. You have to be able to explain to me. No, you have to. You have to explain to me how you go from the from the context and the language that was used to anything whatsoever that has to do with race. The last thing we need. This is the quote again. The last thing we need to do is monkey this up by trying to embrace a socialist agenda. You just said he should be talking about the issues. That's a freaking issue. Well, Whether or not see, we're going to be socialist again, or not, because you because you purposely do this, because you purposely ignore, you never get offended. Because actually, I don't know if it's because there's nothing to be offended here by. You, you know what I'm offended by, anything. Jamar? You know what I'm offended by? I'm offended by people in telling me what I think. Tell, telling you DeSantis, you must be racist, like even though he didn't say anything racist. And then, and then to have a nerve to tell black Jamar. people that I don't have the nerve to get mad when I know what white folks are saying when, yeah. they, call, when they go to call you monkey and articulate. Let me ask you a question. If you just be quiet for a second, let me ask you a question. How many times do you hear white folks describe white men as an articulate man? Walter, they don't do it. Why do I sure they do. Walter, I went to grade school. I went to college. I went to high school. I don't need to be described as an articulate. Every single black man, that's exactly the way to describe him, as an articulate black man. In fact, you were described when I first met you on the airways. That's the way you were described as an articulate black man. Was that that an inaccurate statement? Walter. 
can you can you think for yourself? Does, are you not only is that the only way that you can be described as a articulate black man? I, uh, Jamar. I mean, give me a break. What? What? Okay, so every single time a black person offended, you go on Facebook. You go. No, no, you're wrong, Jamar. Jamar, you're talking to a person, and you know this. This is this is what what I find deeply disturbing about this whole scenario. You know who you're talking to. You're talking to the guy who now has. I get to carry the stain of having opposed Trump possibly for the rest of my life. I don't know how many decades it's going to be considered a sin to have been at any point anti-Trump, but I get to bear that burden possibly for decades, if not the rest of my life, because I was willing to call out his playing footsie with the alt-right, because I was willing to speak against things that he said that were problematic from a racial perspective during his campaign. The difference between then and now, the difference between things that Trump said in the past and what DeSantis said tonight is that there was a rational interpretation of the things that Trump said. When Donald Trump came out and said that because the federal judge was Mexican, he can't properly it's rule straight in, in a case. Bias, Walter, and you have to admit it. Trump has no, I do not have to admit. I do not have to admit something that is not evident. do not blow dog whistles. They flat out wear racism on their sleeve. And again, no, it is offensive for me to be, you, me, and any other black man to be described as a black. And again, I have never heard the phrase, I'm going to monkey this up. Let me say again, Walter, even if it were a phrase, you need to choose your words carefully okay so that's the worst thing you can say about it that is no jamar if we're being objective and describing homosexual because i use those words all the time or some other type of offensive no you have to choose your words carefully walter and for you to continue to justify for someone that decided not to that use those words and and artfully okay so let, let me let me grant you let me grant you for the sake of argument the notion that it was an inartful statement that he shouldn't have used that particular word anywhere near a reference to his black opponent. If, 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 if that's the worst we can say about this, because I don't know how you objectively, rationally can derive any other conclusion other than at worst, this was an inartful statement. Why the hair pulling outrage over an inartful statement? What is the big sin here? Let me say it again, because I know you got to uh, get to the bottom of the hour here. Let me say it again. I, I personally, again, am sick of being described. And here in black folks, that's exactly how we are described all the time. What Walter, are you talking about? Who is going around ta- describing black people as monkeys? You know who's doing you it? Let me tell you who's you, doing it, Jamar. Let me tell you who's doing it. Your friends are. Your, your Democratic friends are. Your Democratic friends. As soon as you walk out of the room, as soon as you walk out of the room, your Democratic friends are out there talking about you, calling you a monkey, calling calling you all kinds of racist names because that's how they really feel about you. They don't care about you or any other black person at all. They never have and they never will. They only care about the utility that you present to their political agenda. And you know, you, you want to you can call me a fool all you want. But you're the one who is being used on a daily, weekly, monthly, annual cycle basis to promote your own demise. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com.
Politico had an article on Monday where they had this quote. The quote was, an unsolved 62-year-old mystery could throw a monkey wrench into any plan special counsel Robert Mueller has to issue a public report on his probe's findings. Well, that's obviously a dog whistle to the alt-right. Monkey wrench? What are you talking about? What do you mean by that? Monkey wrench. I've never heard that phrase before. I've never heard any reference to monkey outside of somebody trying to say something negative about black people. Obviously, that's what you mean. These dog whistles, they're everywhere. All you got to do is look for them, and you'll find that they're everywhere you look. Anytime, you know, there's, uh, what what are we at, like a Curious George? You know, I went through my whole childhood reading Curious George books and watching Curious George on PBS, completely unaware of the fact that I was being mocked, ethnically mocked the entire time. You know, I feel as though I've been victimized by PBS. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 1035 FM, streaming at com and your iHeartRadio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. This is going to be an interesting, this is going to be an interesting next 15, 20 minutes because this has people activated. Yeah, I mean, the likes are rolling in. We just got two new likes on our Facebook page in the last five minutes. The tweets are rolling in. We got four calls lined up. Like, yeah, yeah. It's, we're going. It's it's funny the things that, that get people going. No, but I understand it because this does annoy me. This is this is very, very, like, this is a pet peeve of mine. The intentional misconstruing and misrepresentation of something that somebody says when they obviously did not mean the vile thing that you're interpreting it as. 651-989-5855. Brad Ullman takes your calls and produces the show. All right, so let's start with Leland in Minneapolis. Welcome to the program. Hey, let me rhyme to everybody where I've heard the thing. Hey, hey, we're the monkeys. Some people say we're monkey around. Racist. Racist. Because yeah, it was a reference to that they don't think that we're, we're, we take care of business and that right. we're always out there just being blase. Right. That's where we hear that from, you know, and to say anything else is to pull an Amorosa when she was on The Apprentice. She couldn't win, so when this girl, uh, she accuses, uh, this girl accused Amorosa of doing something Amorosa was saying the girl was doing, and the woman said, well, isn't that calling the kettle black? Because Amorosa was so weak, she said, what did you say about black people? Right. You know, so right. Uh, Jamara is just thinking all along with Amorosa, and so birds of a feather, you know, yeah. but the whole point of it is is that, uh, when there's an absence of good ideas, the de- Democrats always want to go with offense. Mm-hmm. You know, they always want to try to put that in there to kind of bring you down and everything. When I started my business, I had to go to this uh, uh, one place. I didn't have a computer. I had to go to this one place, use a computer. They had a cafeteria, and I would go in there, and they said, well, you don't got to pay. You can go in there because you're here using our services. You can use our cafeteria. So I would go in there. Now, they got along with me as long as they knew I was down and out and I was trying to do this business. Once it started making money and, and, and doing well, a couple of the leftists came and sat with me, which they normally didn't do. And I'm, so I look up from my food, and I'm looking at them like, okay, why are you here? And they said, well, and one of the girls, you know, and she's a leftist, and she goes, uh, I just want to tell you something. And I said, yes. And she said, uh, you know, the cops don't like you, and you get harassed by the police all the time. And I said, no, that doesn't happen. She said, well, you just don't want to admit to it. But it was like it, it hurt her that I, I didn't need their services anymore because I'm becoming an entrepreneur and my business Right, is right, 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 right. And yeah, so when you have, they wanted to shut me down. Yeah, when you have an industry that's built upon people not making it, then you become incentivized to keep them down. And we see all kinds of examples of that. I appreciate the call, Leland. 
Let's go to Chris in Minneapolis. Welcome to the program. Hey, Walter. How's it going? It's going. Hey, I'm going to I'll play devil's advocate for a minute. Um, sure. I moved to Florida when I was 18 years old. Mm-hmm. I just took a took all my money and I just left and went there. Florida's a whole different world. It is really weird. One day I got on the bus and the bus driver, I went and sat in the back, right? Okay. The bus driver yelled at me, said, you get up in the front. What? He said, white boy, sit in the front. What? The N word. You sit in the back. Yeah, this guy told me that, and he was like, my dad's age. I was kind of scared of him, so I did it. But Florida, Florida's a whole different ball game. Oh, so okay. So, I so your the relevance to our topic is you're saying that there is racism in Florida. It might might have been it might have been a slip up, but I'm not so sure. Well, I'll tell you what I I. If you can point to, you know, I did, there was one lefty in my friends list who was pretty honest and forthright about this whole issue, who said something to the effect of, we'll see, you know, and his point was, you know, this, this comment onto itself is not prima facie evidence of racism, but if a pattern of rhetoric develops, if we, if we see over time other indications that substantiate the notion that this guy has some questionable views, then we might be able to come back and, and reevaluate this comment. But onto itself, on its face, you have to invent intent. And that's something that I have a problem with. I appreciate your call, Chris. You have to invent out of whole cloth an intent that is not conveyed objectively in the actual language at all. Let's go to Mike in St. Paul. Welcome to the program. Hi, Walter. So, you know, this is just so disheartening to me because I know DeMar. I've heard him on the radio quite a bit. He's a smart guy, but, you know, like you said, if you're looking for stuff, you're going to find it. But what I'm wondering is that was he this offended when, when Mr. Biden, Joe Biden, called Mr. Obama a clean and articulate yeah. right. guy? How about when Hillary referred to... I mean, you know, the cult hero of the left. Uh, did she not refer to uh, black criminals as rabid dogs? Mm-hmm. Well, I and- think there, there was another uh, episode there, too, where um, uh, it escapes my mind. But you know, I just don't understand. Why is every other immigrant able to, uh, or, or race or ethnicity, able to vote their conscience? But if, if you are a black person, mm-hmm. if you don't vote that Democrat Party line, right. I mean, you just ain't down. The last thing that this guy, I have to believe the last thing that this guy wanted was to bring this kind of attention to himself when he had just won. Now he's the top of the hour, as you heard, the top of the hour news. It totally obfuscated what he had just accomplished. Right. Yeah, well, and that's... And the only tool in your box is the knife, and all you can do is cut... And in, in this case, why, why does Jamar always have to keep looking for the the, the bad? I just oh, it, it's Well, and we know why. We know why. And there, there, there was. I appreciate the call, Mike. There was a, a a lefty who was pretty forthright about it on social media today that I saw, who was basically saying, "Look, this is going to be a close race." That was his actual response when I when I called him to question the legitimacy of the outrage. His actual first response was, well, you know, this is going to be a close race. The implication being, 
We know it's BS, but we have to run with the narrative because it has political utility. This is going to activate people to come out and vote against DeSantis on the completely manufactured notion that he's somehow a racist. Let's talk to Dan in St. Paul. Hi, Dan, how you doing? You're on the way. You're on the air. Sweet. Hey, I just wanted to make one comment that sticks up to me is that if the guy would have used the Effenheimer instead of the monkey term, it would have conveyed probably more accurately where you really wanted to go with that statement. Sure. But, you know, I mean, I, it, that using something like that was the adjective that, you know, the similar adjective that would apply, I think, would be, you know, like using the F-bomb is mm-hmm. kind of the way he would explain it. Um, and the fact that he used that, and like you said, I, I'm white. I didn't hear anything. I didn't hear a dog whistle. You know, it's just ridiculous. Yeah, right. Who are all these dogs who are apparently hearing these whistles? Like, where are all the racists at? That's what I want to know. Where's this constituent? Like, to the last caller's point, I appreciate you called, Dan. To the last caller's point, what is the political utility in being a racist in 2018? Like, how is this a political strategy? I mean, let's take the left at, at, at face value for the sake of argument and assume that DeSantis is not only a rabid racist, but that he's actually integrated racism into his campaign. Who is his constituency? Who are all these people out there who are just waiting to hear somebody call black people monkeys, and then they're going to be like, oh, I wasn't on board before, but boy, I'm coming out to the polls now. He finally said what needed to be said about the black folk. Like, that is not a constituency that exists. That is a constituency that couldn't summon. There are those people out there. They are. But they, that's a constituency that couldn't summon more than a couple of dozen people to show up in Washington, D.C. at the so-called Unite the Right, quote-unquote, rally number two that took place earlier this year. And that was nationally. That was sourced from coast to coast. They couldn't get more than a couple of dozen people to show up to an event. So this idea that there's some sort of great political utility in being a racist and saying racist things, the whole thing is so absurd. It's so transparently political BS, this notion that racism is a huge problem that we that has to be opposed politically. And you know why they're going to this? It's not it's not just because it's a a cheap, attractive rhetorical attack against their opposition. It's because of the context in which Gillum said this. It's in order to distract from the actual object of his comment, the actual object of what it was that he was trying to say. Here again is the quote. The last thing we need to do is to monkey this up by trying to embrace a socialist agenda. The last thing they want you thinking about is that socialist agenda. And so they have to throw something, they have to throw a cognitive distraction at you to get you away from focusing on what socialism is and what that agenda entails. Because if we start talking about that, if we start doing what Jamar claims to actually want to do, which is talk about the issues and what it is that Democrats actually want to do to this country and do to your freedom, they are going to lose. The only possibility they have to win is by inventing and conjuring fake emotional controversies in order to, to to keep us from considering the reality of what it is that they're advocating for. But we're not going to let them get away with it. 
When we come back, we're going to get back into this piece over at the at USA Today and also a, a, a reference piece at Vox that tells us flat out and in detail what socialism is and what the likes of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and this Gillum character down in Florida and Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and the rest of them are up to. 651-989-5855, closing argument. My name's Walter Outson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. 651-989-5855, the number to join us. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. We have this piece that we just scratched the surface of earlier in the program. It is written by a man whose family escaped from socialist Cuba. He grew up in Miami. And he has been, inexplicably, I would actually like to pick his brain on this point, a Democratic activist for a number of years, and apparently just now started to realize that that's a bad idea. <laughs> just now started to realize that, hey, wait a minute, these people look an awful lot like the Cuban communists who my family fled from. He writes in USA Today, despite my working class immigrant roots, I am concerned by the popularity of socialism within my party. On the night of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's victory in New York, I thought her use of the term was a misnomer. Then I began studying the views of the Democratic Socialists of America, the rapidly growing national organization she belongs to, and was disturbed by what I learned. Like those of yesteryear, today's socialists believe the government should nationalize major industries, propose eliminating private ownership of companies, and reject profits. In other words, democratic socialism is a lot like the system my family fled, except its proponents promised to be nicer when seizing your business. When I confronted some progressive friends about this, they initially dismissed my concerns. After sharing some articles with them, the conversation shifted to, they just want us to be more like the Nordic countries, and they're not like real socialists. Both of these reactions are reductionist self-delusions to avoid confronting difficult truths. The latter is particularly absurd, uh, a, a particularly absurd fallacy, because it requires one to believe that adults who willfully join socialist organizations sound like socialists and call themselves socialists are not what they claim to be. Claims of Nordic socialism are also largely exaggerated. As John Steen Scar of Oslo Economics told me, I would stress that the Norwegian economic system is capitalistic, heavily influenced by the U.S. and U.K. This is probably why Democratic Socialists of America argue that the Nordic model is not good enough. The ideological counterparts of America's Democratic Socialists are likelier to be found to our South than Northern Europe. For instance, Cuba, where the state controls three-fourths of the economy, limits private sector activity, and employs the majority of workers. It's clearly more representative of the Democratic Socialists of America economic vision than Denmark, where 89% of the wealth is privately owned and 7 out of 10 Danes work in the private sector. And then we switch over to a piece over at Vox that's written by a self-avowed Democratic Socialist. The title, the headline is Democratic Socialism Explained by a Democratic Socialist. It's written by a Megan Day. 
And she says, she writes, the phrase is indeed everywhere. In addition to Ocasio-Cortez, Senator Bernie Sanders, and now New York gubernatorial candidate Cynthia Nixon have claimed the label Democratic Socialist. Meanwhile, the Democratic Socialists of America, the country's largest socialist group, is seeing its membership explode from 6,000 in summer of 2016 to more than 45,000 today. And the media doesn't quite know what to make of it all. I'm a staff writer. This is the Megan uh, Day who's writing here at Vox. She says, I'm a staff writer at the socialist magazine Jacobin and a member of the Democratic Socialists of America. And here's the truth. In the long run, Democratic socialists want to end capitalism. And we want to do that by pursuing a reform agenda today in an effort to revive a politics focused on class hierarchy and inequality in the United States. The eventual goal is to transform the world to promote everyone's needs rather than to produce massive profits for a small handful of citizens. Pooling society's resources to meet people's basic needs is a tenant of social democracy, one that's been advocated domestically by much of the labor movement and many of its political supporters among New Deal and post-New Deal liberals. This is a vision we share, but we also want more than FDR did. A robust welfare state in an economy that's still organized around capitalists' profits can mitigate the worst inequalities for a while, but it's at best a temporary truce between bosses and workers, and one that the former will look to scrap as soon as they can. The mid-20th century in the United States featured many elements of social democracy, at least for the majority of white workers. Public education became readily available, housing was heavily subsidized, and ordinary workers took home a greater share of income than ever before. But the rich moved quickly to throw all that out the window as soon as they could get away with it, starting in the 1970s when stagflation and the oil crisis presented pretexts for pro-capitalist policies that set the stage for a weakened welfare state under President Ronald Reagan. And she goes on to, to bemoan the losses that have been made uh, in from from the left as they perceive it. And then she continues, Many observers see groups like Democratic Socialists of America pushing for policies like Medicare for All and decide that we must actually be something like New Deal liberals who are simply confused about the meaning of socialism. That's not true. Our goal is not to rein in the excesses of capitalism for a few decades at a time. We want to end our society's subservience to the market. Consider that again. You know, again, this is this is a gal who identifies as a democratic socialist. She's a member of the Democratic Socialists of America, the same organization that claims among its membership Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, who DNC chair Tom Perez has described as the future of the Democratic Party. And she says that the goal of democratic socialists is an end to capitalism. She says that the goal of the democratic socialists is to end society's quote subservience unquote to the market do you know what the market is the market is just freedom that's all it is it's just freedom it's just being free to pursue your own values and to actually to to have relationships that are governed by consent that's all the market is it's not nuanced it's not complicated it's not like the mechanisms of the market can be nuanced. The mechanisms of the market can be complicated. But what the market is, is really simple. It's just people being free. It's just people engaged in consensual relationship. It's the absence of force. That is what the Democratic Socialists of America want to end. She continues. 
Medicare for All is an instructive example. Winning single-payer health care in the U.S. would be an enormous relief to the millions of Americans who, even with insurance, find themselves stymied by claims denials and crushed by medical debt. Many progressives and an increasing number of centrist liberals, even a few Trump supporters, want the private insurance industry to be replaced by a single comprehensive public insurance program. One we all pay into with our taxes to relieve everyone of financial stress in times of illness. Man, this is somebody who has no sense of what they're talking about at all in terms of how this, these things actually work. But we also know, and this, this is a key point that I want you to pay attention to here that she writes about. We also know that Medicare for all is not socialism. It would only nationalize insurance, not the whole health care system. Doctors would remain private employees, for example, though under some plans they would be required to restructure their businesses into nonprofit entities. Democratic socialists ultimately want something more like the British National Health Service. You know, that one where you can't get care because you're waiting in line and that, that same service that literally keeps babies from seeking health care paid for by their parents and makes them die. That's what she wants. That's what the Democratic Socialists want to bring here. She describes it as a system in which everyone pays taxes to fund not just insurance, but doctors and hospitals and medicine as well. So the takeaway from this is two points. One, democratic socialists, of which Alexandria Ocasio or Cortez is one, or Cortez is one, explicitly want to end capitalism and end the market. In other words, they want to end freedom. They want to subjugate individuals under the boot of the state. That's what they want to do. They want to completely nationalize entire industries. That's point number one to take away. Point number two is that everything they're proposing today, as admitted here out in the open at Vox and other sources we can point you to, everything they're advocating for today is an incremental step toward that end of wholly subjugating the individual, ending capitalism and ending the market. And so these people, first of all, need to be condemned as a moral evil. Individually, they are morally evil, and collectively, they present a profound, imminent threat to everything America stands for and need to be dealt with as such. They need to be politically ruined. They need to be condemned. They need to be called out. They need to be defeated on every front. And the only way we're going to be able to do that, and you know, we, we can go into this a little bit more when we come back, the only way we're going to be able to do that successfully as conservatives, Republicans, however you want to describe yourself, the only way we're going to be able to oppose them is by focusing on that evil, focusing on the morality of what they want to do to this country and what they want to do to us and the people that we love. That means avoiding the distractions. That means not buying into the, the Gillum versus DeSantis flare that the, that the media just shot up into the air. It means not getting caught up in the Trump versus the whoever on Twitter of the day. That means not getting bogged down into arguing about the Robert Mueller investigation and, and potential collusion and, and all these distractions. It means focusing like a laser on the profound moral evil that democratic socialists are advancing within the Democratic Party right now under our nose. They need to be opposed, and we need to focus on that. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5. Or, <laughs> There you go.
going to defeat these self-described democratic socialists unless we focus, unless we fo- unless we understand who our enemy is and we treat them as an enemy and we seek relentlessly to defeat them and expose them and call them out as the moral evil that they objectively and clearly are. There's not enough of this rhetoric. You know, it, it reminds me of there was a story right after the primary here in Minnesota where the the Star Tribune, I think it was, did a, a little profile on Jeff Johnson and and Tim Walls. And Johnson was quoted as, you know, they had a couple of, of debates right after the primary election. And Johnson was quoted saying something along the lines of, you know, what a nice guy Tim Walls is and how, you know, they, they get along and this is going to be a nice, clean race and we're going to talk about issues and yada, yada, yada. And look, I appreciate what Jeff is trying to say there. I don't question his sincerity. I, I, I understand what he's getting after. It's Minnesota. You're trying to be Minnesota nice. You're trying to present a good front. You're trying to present a, a little bit of a contrast to perhaps the, the rancor on, in the national debate. But we can't do, we cannot, we cannot call the other side nice. We cannot pretend as though this was the mistake that John McCain made as well. You know, they've been ever since you know he passed this weekend. There's been repeat playing of the clip. We played it for you here on Monday ourselves of during the 2008 campaign when John McCain was confronted by a supporter who said something along the lines of "I'm concerned about Barack Obama. I don't trust him because he's an Arab," which is just patently absurd and kind of hilarious on his face. In fact, the audience was laughing at her as she said it. And John McCain took the mic, and what did he say? What was John McCain's response to that? No, no, no. He's a decent man. He's a decent man who I just happen to have fundamental disagreements with. Well, if Barack Obama is a decent man who you just have a few disagreements with, then why shouldn't I vote for him? Why shouldn't anybody support him? This is not how you talk about your political opponent. This is not how you talk about somebody who's seeking to fundamentally transform the libertarian nature of American exceptionalism. You don't describe them as decent. There's nothing decent about somebody who wants to take your freedom away. There's nothing decent about somebody who wants to entrap your grandchildren in debt and and shackle their capacity for productivity and advancement. Who wants to who wants to put a kibosh on the very mechanisms of progress enabled by the by Western civilization and the unique American idea, the unique American creed? There's nothing nice about that. There's nothing decent about that. That's vile. That's evil. That's deserving of condemnation. And nobody should vote for that. This is how we need to talk about the left. This is how we need to talk about Democrats. This is how we need to talk about Tim Walls. This is how we need to talk about, you know. Gillum in Florida. This is how we need to talk about these people. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And unlike them, like when they have their fake outrage, you know, this this controversy between DeSantis and, and Gillum going on down in Florida where uh, DeSantis made a comment along the lines of, of monkeying around or, you know, we, need, we, we can't monkey this up by electing somebody who's pursuing socialism in the state of Florida. And the left started rending robes and gnashing teeth and crying racism. And, oh, obviously that was a racist comment. Their outrage is almost always fake. It's almost always fake. To the extent that it's not fake, it's 
non-objective. It's irrational. It's not based upon anything real. What I'm suggesting is that we also get a rage machine going, but the difference is that we actually have merit. We actually have something of substance to hang our hat upon. We have a reason to be upset. We have a reason to call our opponents evil, to call our opponents vile, to call our opponents inhumane, because they actually objectively are, and we can demonstrate it in the context of reality. We can point to places on the globe where their ideas have been implemented, and the result has been death and devastation and misery and poverty and suffering. This is real. This stuff is really happening on the globe as wherever their ideas are tried. And that's what they want to bring here. How are we losing to these people? How are we losing the culture? How are we losing the in the rhetorical debate? I'll tell you how. I'll tell you how we're losing. It's on two fronts. We're losing on two fronts. One, the one I just described, where we're going around, you know, straightening our tie, talking about how nice everybody is. That's one way that we're losing. By by lending moral legitimacy by acting as though we're on the same level and playing on a fair playing field with people who are actively seeking to subjugate our freedom. That's one way in which we're losing. The second way, I hate to say it, I know I lose a lot of you here when I go this direction, but the second way is all of the Trump distractions. All of the ways in which Trump has distracted us or creates distractions for us with the controversies, the unforced errors that arise around his personality and the things that he says, the things that he tweets, the the ways in which, and look, you know, I, I just got done explaining to you how important it is to condemn the left and to take the fight. So this isn't a question of whether or not we're going to fight. We absolutely need to fight. I understand that people like Trump because he fights. But what I'm suggesting to you is that there's a strategy to it, right? Like a winning, a prize fighter, you know, let's take the metaphor all the way here. A winning prize fighter doesn't just go out there into the ring and start doing the windmill, right? Where he's just swinging his arms, swinging both arms, punching as fast as he can in every different direction wildly in some hope that a punch is going to land and he's going to somehow knock the guy out and win, right? There's a strategy to it. There's a plan. There's, there's, there's a technique. There's an art to it, an artfulness, a funness to the proceedings. And that's what I'm suggesting we need. We need to be a fighter, yes. We need to get in there and get after the left, yes. We need to seize the moral high ground, which is rightfully ours. That's that's the virtue of it. Yes, we need to do that. But we need to do it with some intent, some intentionality, some purpose, with a plan, with a strategy, without unforced errors, without stupid distractions. And when the left tries to count, because the distractions come in one of two forms. There's the distractions that we create through unforced errors, and there's the distractions that the left and the media creates through their fake outrage and their fake news, where they try to manufacture a controversy. And we can deal with the, with the distractions that are self-imposed, the unforced errors. We can deal with those by not making those errors. That's pretty easy. We can deal with the distractions that are conjured by the left by not giving them an inch of legitimacy. The proper response to this DeSantis Gillum controversy down in Florida with the let's not monkey this up controversy, the proper response to that is to roll our eyes and push forward and say, that's not what I meant. 
Everybody knows that's not what I meant. This is a non-controversy. It's completely illegitimate. Let's get back to talking about the socialism that Gillum wants to drive us into. He doesn't want us to talk about that. He wants to focus on a fake story, a fake outrage controversy, because he doesn't want to run on what he actually wants to do to this state. He doesn't want to run on the bind that he's going to leave your grandchildren in if his policies are put into action. That's how you roll with that punch. And if we all did this consistently across the board as conservatives and Republicans, we'd win everything. Closing argument. My name's Walter Adson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, I mean, if you want to understand the potency and the utility and the importance of making the moral argument, you know, just pause to realize that that's exactly what the left is doing. When they when they go to Florida or they look at Florida and they conjure this controversy between DeSantis and Gillum over the let's not monkey it up comment, what they're doing is they are creating out of whole cloth. They're creating a moral controversy because they recognize the power of appealing to morality. Every time they talk about issues, when they talk about Medicare for all, when they talk about paying for everybody's college, when they talk about you know housing as a right, as Jacob Fry said recently in Minneapolis uh, in, in a way of, of responding to a homeless camp that's popped up there, when they say these things, they, it's always on, on moral terms. They're always talking about what's right and what's wrong, and they're putting themselves on the side of right and their opponents on the side of wrong. They don't say, you don't see, we had a story not too long ago. There was a guy, I forget the exact context. It was two guys who had gone to school together, who had grown up together as children. One of them was a professor somewhere, and the other one had just been, had just secured the nomination of his of the Republican Party in his state to run for governor. And so the professor put out a tweet saying something to the effect of, yeah, I know this guy. We grew up together. He's a nice guy. I, I disagree with his politics, but he's a nice guy, and he always will be, and we'll be friends, you know, no matter what, through thick and thin, until, until the day we die. Something to that effect. And he was lamb-blasted. He, he was, came under such withering assault from his fellow Democrats, from his fellow leftists, that he issued an apology for saying that his childhood friend was a nice guy. That's the level of moral condemnation that the left is prepared to engage in. They don't even tolerate you saying that a Republican is a nice person. Now, (laughs) that is vile when they do it. It would be entirely appropriate for us to turn it around and do it on them because they actually are vile. What they are proposing actually is a violation of objective morality. They actually are pursuing something that is wrong and needs to be opposed. And so we shouldn't be going around talking about how nice they are. We should be condemning them. We should be speaking in stark moral terms. Hopefully I've gotten that point across so far tonight. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Before we close out the show this evening, I wanted to circle back around to this piece from the American Vision that's a response to the crisis that the Catholic Church finds itself in right now with Pope Francis 
remaining silent in the face of provocative and disturbing allegations of covering up sexual abuse within the church. Dr. Joel McDermott writes at the American Vision, by now you've heard stories like this too many times. Father McFarlane had a reputation for sexual deviancy. He crossed the line in conversations with children with sexually suggestive language. By 2005, his bishops had investigated complaints by six different children in his diocese, but they didn't report him to police or remove him from the priesthood. Instead, they let him become someone else's problem. They hid his behavior and let him go minister somewhere else. In one memo, a bishop said, this incident does not have to end McFarland's career and recommended the diocese conduct a graceful exit. He landed in another place where no one knew his record. Then, in 2011, he struck again, this time having sex with a 16-year-old girl. Like I said, it's an all-too-familiar story, except this was not really Father McFarlane. It was Mr. McFarlane, and he was not a priest. He was a public school teacher. And the people who covered up for him were not bishops and cardinals. They were public school administrators and school district attorneys. I took all the details for the scenario above, much of it verbatim, from a USA Today story about Kip McFarlane, a public school teacher at Orangefield Independent School District in Texas. Perhaps the most shocking point in my recent article on the sex abuse problem was the problem in the public schools. We wrote, one study from Hofstra University laments that while there are a number of federally funded national studies on child sexual abuse, there are none that document educator sexual abuse. Gleaning what it can from related studies and databases, this report notes that 9.6% of students grades 8 to 11 have reported sexual abuse, and 21% of these alleged abuses are by educators. This represents roughly, uh, by quick math, about 300,000 cases of sexual abuse. Other sources confirm this problem is big, far more common than you want to believe. Further, just like the Catholic Catholic problem, public schools continue to conceal the actions of dangerous educators in ways that allow them to stay in the classroom. Now, he goes on to, to describe this in further detail. The, the bottom line of this comparison is, is that there's a disparity between the focus that is put on the Catholic Church and their issue, which is an actual issue that needs to be addressed, and the complete lack of attention that is given to what is a significantly larger problem in the public school system. And there's a very clear and obvious reason for that disparity. And that's because who is watching the watchman? Who's in charge? You know, the purpose of government, the reason why government exists, the only moral justification for the institution whatsoever is the protection of individual rights. And because government is not limited to that end, it, it's not able to protect people from itself. When you have a public education system where, where the incentive is there to sustain and to continue to feed and to protect because they're part of the, the government family, the state family, you are not going to see the focus on abuses that come in a, in a government context like you see in a private context such as the Catholic Church. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 1035 FM, 9 to 11 weeknights, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com.